Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. I started out on the street, a complete unknown in a brand new town with a new name, living as somebody completely different for months at a time. And you get to know people 
and you start to work your way through. So you're given your target list and you usually don't meet those targets right away because you know, you're meeting the people that work at the grocery store, you're meeting the people at the laundromat, you're starting to, you're hanging out at the strip clubs all the time, you're hanging out at the local bars, and you're becoming known and you're getting to know people. And you really start to see things and you start to identify what's going on. But the the object of the job, at least how I interpreted my role, was not to go in and to get as many bodies or make as many arrests as possible. It was to gather as much intel. And if there are people that are dealing drugs and breaking the law and uh, committing violent assaults and all of the things that go along with the culture, yeah. um, that that's my job. Mm. And I present the evidence and I get the evidence. And we always had to have more than one buy. It's not like you do a buy and bust. Mm. You did several to show a repeated history that that's how the person is earning their money. It's not just, you know, I'm a, I'm an attractive young woman in a bar and a guy gives me dope because he's got other motives. That's not a drug dealer. That's a guy. It's different. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Pamela, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to be here with you. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I actually came across your work by way of my former business partner, Brian, who I believe is friends with your husband. And they told me a little bit about what you did. And I just read the bio and I was like, hell yes, I want to talk to her. She was an <laughs> undercover police officer, you know, worked in the DEA and a prosecutor. I was like, oh my God, she's probably got to have the craziest stories ever. But before we get into all of that madness, um, I want to start by asking what I think is a really relevant question, given the nature of your background. And that is, what social group were you a part of in high school? And what impact did that end up having on what you ended up doing with your life and your career? You know, it's interesting when I look back on that, I can't really even put the two together because I was fairly introverted. And the group that I belonged to is, I would say, the pretty average group. You know, we weren't out in the back smoking dope uh, and we weren't the ones who were involved in every sport and every academic um, activity going. We were just sort of in the middle. I came from a really small town um, that was known as sort of the the wrong side of the track, so to speak. So there was a stigma about coming from this poor little town where welfare was a big thing, and we lived close to a military base as well. So there was there was that to deal with. But I had my core group of friends that came from that same circumstance, and we we hung mm-hmm. out together. And I would say it was pretty average. I'd love to say it was exciting, and I was a real badass in high school, but that's <laughs> definitely not the case. Yeah. Were you, I mean, you said, you know, you came from the wrong side of the tracks. Did you see a lot of crime growing up? I think, you know, for the, I wouldn't say it was crazy like you would see in the movies. There weren't any drive-by shootings and drugs were in existence, but they weren't overly obvious. You know, keeping in mind that I came from a small Canadian um, community, probably about an hour and a half north of Toronto. So it was about 1,500 people. And I knew all of the the people that were, you know, dealing with the police on a pretty regular basis because we were a small community. But my background, I never felt afraid or nervous about that being out late or running into people. I always had a confidence that came from, I guess, the intimacy of knowing people. It's it's like anyone who has a certain background or or demographic that they grow up in. It may seem scary and weird to outsiders, but when you're on the inside, it seems completely normal. Hmm. So I wonder what uh, the underlying your message uh, your parents gave you about making your way in the world was. Because one, when you told your parents that, hey, I'm going to go become a police officer, particularly as a woman, I wonder uh, what that conversation was like. Because I know know, for a fact that there are not a lot of women in the police force. Definitely. And not when I started, especially. But, you know, I was hoping I would be that one guest that you didn't ask about parents and things. But I guess I (laughs) I didn't slide by that one. (laughs) So my parents were really young, 16 years old. And my mom was 16 when she had me. My dad was, you know, 17. 
had to leave high school because in the 60s, you can't go to high school pregnant as a woman. So my mom's kicked out of school and really struggled a lot. My father left. I have had really zero interaction with him. And uh, I, my mom really did the best she had um, yeah, that she could do with what she had. So when I told her I was going to be a police officer, I, I don't think she had strong feelings about it one way or the other, but she was one of those parents who really believed that education and hard work were the way out of poverty, were the way out of circumstances. And she definitely didn't want me to repeat the life that she had. So I was encouraged to go uh, to university, which is what I did before I became a police officer. And I thought I was going to be a lawyer, but I have to tell you, by the time I was finished undergrad, I was really ready to get going. And the excitement of being a police officer really attracted me because it was the law, but it was exciting. Now, of course, later I go to law school, become a lawyer and all of that works out. But um, yeah, I just, I think she was proud, but a little bit nervous. As you mentioned, being Mm. a woman, very different circumstances. And for me in the drug unit, I was one of 92 officers uh that was there was actually two of us there were two women in a unit of of 92 officers and um that was a really interesting yeah uh work environment i can imagine i I definitely want to ask you about that but one thing i wonder uh is having had the experience you did with your parents how has that informed your own experience as a parent and uh you know what you've decisions that you've made raising your own children oh that i think is huge for sure because I really feel I was uh, older when I became a mom and had a lot more life experience, clearly, and education, 10 years of post-secondary education, a lot of experience, of course, as an undercover police officer. So very protective parent, but at the same time, understand that, you know, our son has to choose his own, his own path, his own way. And I don't think it's been really easy for him sometimes growing up with two parents who both have undercover uh, drug enforcement experience. (laughs) (laughs) He's a teenager now. And, you know, especially when my whole thing is, you know, nonverbals and a little bit of deception detection, trust Uh building and all of that. You know, I can only you'd have to get him on here probably 10 years from now to ask him some of these questions (laughs) about how all of that looks. But I I really do think it's informed, you know, I I get where my mom was coming from about wanting a better life for me and really wanting me to work hard. And sometimes I struggle for sure, because, you know, as a parent, you think you know best and you think, you know, your kids tell you they want something. So you work really hard to support them. But you have to understand where to draw the line where, you know, they change their mind a lot Uh and they need to be able to experience lots of different things. And it's funny, one time my son and I were driving by, uh, I was picking him up from school. He might have been, you know, seven at the time. And we're driving by this chicken farm. And if you've ever driven past a chicken farm or chicken processing area, the smell is overwhelming. It was just unbelievable. And my son just out of the blue says, mom, I know two things. I said, what's that? He said, one, I don't want to be a chicken farmer. And two, I don't want to be a lawyer because I was a lawyer at the time and I was picking him up after court. So um, I think he still holds strong on yeah. those decisions. So I think to me, the the really sort of the question that that raises is, okay, so you've got a son who's a teenager. Teenagers by their very nature are experimental. I know that the first time that I smoked pot was actually when I was a senior in high school. I'm guessing depending if I had different friends, it would have been a lot sooner. How as a parent, you particularly as a parent who worked undercover in drug enforcement, you navigate the dynamics of a teenager who's probably going to gravitate towards that anyways, particularly with the training that you have. It's it's tough because of course he's going to go through things and he's going to make mistakes and he's going to learn. And the only way he's going to learn and embrace the lessons is if he does it himself, listening to me talk about it, I'm sure impacts a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, you know, I see, I've seen the horrific things that drugs can do to individuals, to communities, to families. And of course we've talked about that, but it's interesting. Just the other day I was taking him to a ski race And we were having uh, a bit of one-on-one time and talking. And I said, you know, sometime that's going to come up. You're going to be, there's going to be drugs. There's going to be lots of stuff happening. And the only thing I ask of you is that you tell me about it. So, you know, if you need to experiment, I get it. 
if you feel pressure and you've tried it because of the pressure, I get it. I just want to be kept in the loop of your inner circle of, of how all of this works. I just, we, Kevin and I really work hard to have open communications because it would be so easy for us to be preachy and, you know, sharing the horror stories all of the time. But a lot of times drug use, you know, there's, there's all sorts of different dynamics around drug use now. And especially with the legalization of marijuana really Mm -hmm. happening almost on a global scale. And, you know, I have different feelings about that. I, I personally, my personal beliefs, if you're interested in knowing that coming from my background is that all personal use uh, drugs should be decriminalized. Mm -hmm. I don't think that we as a society are doing any favors to anyone by making criminals or making addicts into criminals. That's definitely doesn't serve anyone. And for people to think, I think there's this misconception often that police are really, you know, out there trying to target the low level drug user. And maybe in some areas and in some circumstances, of course, that's the case. We hear about it. Mm. But for a huge segment of police officers and people that are really drawn to service in their communities, it's not about that. No, It's definitely not about that. There's the spirit of the law and there's the letter of the law. And I like to think of myself both as when I was working as an undercover police officer and as a federal prosecuting attorney mm-hmm. that I embraced the spirit of the law. I didn't apply the letter of the law, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, no, it, it really does. Uh, it, you know, it, it's funny because you mentioned the two episodes that you actually reviewed, which were, you know, both people who had served time. Uh, and I was rewatching the documentary, the 13th, the other night. Uh, I'm guessing you've probably seen it or heard of it, which is all about the 13th Amendment and, in which they basically say, OK, people can be uh, no longer held as slaves with one exception uh, if they have committed a crime. And of course, that was sort of the, the beginning of mass incarceration apparently mm-hmm. uh, in the United mm-hmm. States. And, you know, I, I want, you know, you said that you think all personal drug use should be decriminalized. And right now there are people who are serving mandatory minimums for things mm-hmm. that people in my neighborhood in Boulder are doing out on the streets legally and making a living mm-hmm. at, mm-hmm. Um, you know, so one from the perspective of a police officer, what are the dynamics like of race that you have to deal with from your side compared to somebody like Chris Wilson, who basically sees this relationship with the police as one of, you know, it's just fear because that's the way we were raised. Um, and then, you know, the other thing I wonder is what misperceptions do you think that the media creates uh, with the public about law enforcement based on what we see? Oh, the first one about media, I think there's a huge misunderstanding on both sides, especially when it comes to race. And and again, I am definitely not going to say that Canada is better than anyone when it comes to that. We definitely have our challenges. Absolutely. I'm not certain that it's to the the same degree, um, but for sure there there are issues with race and policing uh, throughout North America. And the media is right to report on that and to highlight things. I, I don't know if you've read um, Mel- any a lot of Malcolm Gladwell. I'm yeah. guessing that you obviously have. And, mm-hmm. and his most recent book, Talking Strangers, is an incredible book that just opens with that exact story. This young black woman is driving to a new job at a college in Texas and gets pulled over by a white police officer and this whole misunderstanding which i really feel stems from his fear escalates to this insane interaction mm-hmm. and she's you know put in jail and eventually commits suicide it's a horrible story it's a story that's repeated over and over and over again and it's fear on everyone's part and i think in some cases too a misplaced sense of power that is in a lot of ways, systemic and cultural in policing. Mm-hmm. And the only way that it can get better is if we take the time to get to know one another. Working undercover absolutely helps with that. And I'll tell you the really good undercover police officers. And when I say good in this context, I'm not making a moral good or bad. I'm saying that the ones who could do their job and connect with real drug deals, real criminals, were people that were empathetic, people that understood others, people that could put themselves in the shoes of another person. That's how they became really great. The undercover cops who couldn't buy an aspirin in a drugstore, and there are some of those, 
are the ones who see themselves as an us and them mm. type situation. And it's tough to overcome. Yeah, that's such a bizarre paradox though, right? You're going undercover specifically to basically find out if these people are committing a crime. And yet, how do you how do you have any level of objectivity without putting yourself in an us and them situation? Because ultimately, at the end game of this is to put them in jail for what they're doing, isn't it? Uh, absolutely. No, I don't think so. Okay. I think that that's one of the misunderstandings as well, because our job. So the, the way we do things in Canada and how our laws work is that. You can't just random virtue test someone. So you just can't, I can't walk up to you because I see you and ask you to sell me drugs or try to entrap you into doing something that you wouldn't otherwise do. We're given, um, when I was working, we're given a target list, which are people that uh, either informants have talked about, or there's, you know, other information and intelligence that's coming in. And it's our job to either confirm or reject that intel. So when you go into a town, and I did the majority of my undercover work, started when you don't have an agent, and an agent is someone who is not a police officer but has an in with uh, the dealers and with the the, uh, organized crime that you're trying to infiltrate. So they're already known. They're not a police officer, but they're the ones who are vouching for you. And I didn't work in those situations. I started out on the street, a complete unknown in a brand new town with a new name, living as somebody completely different for months at a time. And you get to know people and you start to work your way through. So you're given your target list and you usually don't meet those targets right away because, you know, you're meeting the people that work at the grocery store. You're meeting the people at the laundromat. You're starting to, you're hanging out at the strip clubs all the time. You're hanging out at the local bars And you're becoming known and you're getting to know people. And you really start to see things and you start to identify what's going on. But the the object of the job, at least how I interpreted my role, was not to go in and to get as many bodies or make as many arrests as possible. It was to gather as much intel. And if there are people that are dealing drugs and breaking the law and Uh, committing violent assaults and all of the things that go along with the culture um, that that's my job. Mm -hmm. And I present the evidence and I get the evidence and we always had to have more than one buy. It's not like you do a buy and bust. Mm -hmm. You did several to show a repeated history that that's how the person is earning their money. It's not just, you know, I'm a, I'm an attractive young woman in a bar and a guy gives me dope because he's got other motives. That's not a drug dealer. That's a guy. No. Uh, it's different. So one thing that I, I, I really wonder about, you said you're basically assuming these different identities. Uh, how do you basically keep your undercover identity and your real identity from blending? And then how do you navigate the dynamic of dealing with people in your regular life when you're living this undercover life? Well, they absolutely blend for sure, because the whole point is to keep things as real as possible. So clearly your name is different um, and a little bit about your background and history, but you try to keep as much of that true as possible because it makes having conversations a lot easier. So, for example, um, I met my husband working undercover and I'd never met him before. I knew of him. He worked in another drug unit about you know, six hours away from where I was. And I'd heard his name. He had, he'd been around a lot longer and I'm told, okay, you're going to go and live for 10 months with this guy. And you're going to pretend to be common law married. And, you know, you've got your target list and here's what's going to happen. I'm thinking, Oh my, you know, I got to go live with this guy. He's got hair down his back. He's wearing (laughs) flip-flops all the time. He's got this Hawaiian shirt that I've seen. He's always this, who is this guy? So we meet up for the first time and we go through our background story. Okay, how long have we been together? Uh, How are we going to work this out? Because you have to live together. You know, you're bringing criminal people who are very suspicious of new people. If there's anyone who's suspicious, it's drug dealers and organized crime. They do not like new people. They're very Mm -hmm. suspicious. So you have to create this whole thing to eliminate a lot of that. So we're getting to know each other. We get a two bedroom apartment clearly because like, you know, we're not going to just, I'm not going to actually be his common law wife. We're both 
police officers were partners, essentially. So we decorate one of the rooms as a kid's room to say that Kevin has uh, a child from a previous relationship that he rarely sees, but we keep this bedroom for her just in case she visits. So that's where he slept. And it was a believable story, right? The people that are coming over to have a child that doesn't live with you and rarely visits is not like a big stretch for anybody. So they're like, okay. And I was even getting my doctor to make any prescription medications I had in my fake name so that when people open up the medicine cabinet or look in my cupboards, everything lines up. So we work really hard to keep all of that as close to the truth as possible. Now you can imagine what it's like to live with a complete stranger, but act as though he or she has been your lover for the last three or four years and that you have a history together and a background together. Um, So that takes a little bit of work, uh, a lot more than it does if you're working on your own. Yeah. So I want to actually do a much deeper dive into the entire undercover career, but uh, I want to go back to a couple of things that you said earlier. One of the things that you said is that you believed that um, we should be decriminalizing personal use, but you also mentioned that you have seen the devastation that drug use causes to communities, to families, to people. How do you navigate or, or how do those two things coexist? How can we decriminalize you know, personal use and not have the devastation that occurs? Oh, I think, you know, Portugal, people are always quoting Portugal yeah. as an example. And I don't know a lot about Portugal. I've read a little bit about it, but essentially decriminalizing and legalizing are two completely different things. So legalizing, which is what a lot of, uh, which is what Canada has done and a lot of states have done, legalizing marijuana. So you can have it, you can do whatever. There's no catch-all for any any of that. Decriminalizing means that you can still enter the system if you have, if you possess. So let's say, for example, we decriminalize heroin, cocaine, meth uh, for personal use, and someone has that clear. People aren't using meth as a, you know, a Friday night like you have a glass of wine kind <laughs> right. of thing. It's a bit different. Yeah. Um, you know, marijuana. There's arguments on both sides of that, but let's stick to the the harder drugs to talk mm. about because that's where the real devastation comes in. What if we had a system? where you you're you we're not putting addicts in jail and treating them like criminals because that that's like treating people with mental health illnesses you know as criminals it just it makes no sense to me but yeah. what if we had a system where they could enter the system so you're in possession of heroin you enter the system and one of the requirements is that you get treatment or that you are given support that is paid for by the state mm. And what a difference I think that could make. And that's really what I'm suggesting. I'm not saying that we make it a free-for-all for everyone. Right. I'm saying that we need to change things to take the criminal element out of personal abuse. Mm-hmm. We call it personal use, but you know, personal abuse, and and shift that conversation to talk more about health mm-hmm. and wellness and helping people. Because I can tell you this, the when I listen to your other episodes, and I listen to more than just people who had been in the system for sure. Yeah. But those ones really interest me because I'm I'm very passionate about that. I never, ever dealt in my, you know, 10 years uh, working undercover with a person who came from a great upbringing, a person who, you know, grew up with, uh, you know, June and Ward Cleaver kind of thing from Leave it to Beaver. They, they yeah. didn't have, you know, this wonderful, loving home where both parents were there for them. Not one person. I never have ever dealt with someone professionally as an undercover uh, in that situation. There was always abuse, neglect, challenges, um, you know, breakups and families all. And I'm not saying those are excuses by Mm -hmm. any stretch, because a lot of people have all of that and more happen in their background and they don't become drug dealers and they don't do uh, a lot of things that wind up um, on the front page of the newspaper They lead normal, great lives and do exceptional things. I'm just saying that there was that common thread that ran through every single story that I heard because you really hear stories, interesting stories, because when people think you are one of them, you're one of their tribe, their gang, their community, they will tell you things that they they wouldn't tell me if they knew who I was. And I'm not talking about their crimes, et cetera. I'm talking about their background and life. They didn't say it like, hey, feel sorry for me. My dad beat me all the time. It was sort of just like, that's what I had for breakfast. It was so normal. 
in their way of living that it didn't even cross their mind that not everybody has that kind of upbringing. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, that today still sticks with me as um, one of the greatest lessons I learned working undercover. Mm. So one of the things I wonder, I mean, you mentioned that you're in Canada. Do you have the same sort of mass incarceration and for-profit prison systems that we do here in the United States? Because, I mean, when you look at documentaries like 13th and you see some of these stories like the Central Park Five, uh, mm-hmm. it's just horrifying mm-hmm. what we've mm-hmm. done. Mm-hmm. Uh, fortunately, not to that degree, for sure. Our prisons are, um, we do have some private ones now that have started mostly since I've left the profession, but uh, not to the same degree. We definitely have some overcrowding, but the mass incarceration, absolutely not. Um, if anything, I th- my view of our justice system is that we work hard to avoid that if we can. And I, and I think that, um, you know, we do our best to try to offer like, and we have uh, educational systems and I'm not saying that prison is a great place to be. I can't imagine no. um, how awful that would be as a, as a female undercover, I never did uh, an incarceration, but some male officers have gone in of course to do, uh, incarcerations with people accused of whatever to see what what they can learn and, and hear about. But um, I never had to do that. So I didn't experience that firsthand. I visited a lot of informants in prison and in jail uh-huh. uh, and saw, but I only saw, you know, I'm, I enter through a back hallway where no one can see me. Who wants, who wants to know that they're meeting with the cops, right? Mm-hmm. Nobody. So especially drug under, you know, drug cops. So I would go in and just be in this small room and see, but um, yeah. Not the same. A couple of other questions um, specifically about sort of, uh, you know, the back story behind all of this, and then we'll get into specifically what your expertise is. But uh, when we see TV shows like Narcos, um, are mm. we seeing something that is misrepresented for the sake of entertainment or is it accurate? I think, you know, I didn't head down to Columbia by any stretch. I did watch the series and I really enjoyed it a lot. And um, I think I'm actually going to be speaking at a conference where the two uh, real guys from Narcos are going to be speaking at a, at a fraud conference, if you can believe it. But, um, I think that there's some, like, I really resonated with the personal life of, you know, the one officer and they didn't work undercover. Everybody knew they were DEA. So Mm -hmm. it was, they were playing clothes, essentially. They weren't really, you know, everybody knew they were the cops. So it was a little bit different. I didn't have that kind of experience because of course my preference was that nobody knew what I did. Right. Um, but I, you know, I, I definitely see the, the, the personal struggle that happens uh, with family when you have to live a life that's completely outside of how you live your normal life. When you take a look at um, the Johnny Depp movie yeah uh, <laughs> that's my favorite like, movie of all the, one of my favorite donnie brasco yeah and uh you know i it, it's so fascinating to me because it's so true you know you're you're out there you're doing this thing you're you're you know you you're a police officer on the inside but you're doing all of these other things and you're living this life with these people who I wouldn't say necessarily become your friends in the way you think about it, but they're definitely people that you start to, you know, understand. And you you have this kind of relationship that's kind of bizarre, but you, you care about what's happening. You see what's going on in their life. And, and then you come home and you cut the grass and you hear about, you know, the mundane things that the neighbors are doing or whatever. And it's, you know, it's just, it totally mind screws you around a little bit. And then you you finish up a big project, for example. So you work 10, 11 months undercover, you live as this person, then you do your big takedowns and you have the takedown party, you know, at the end of all of that. And it's like, rah, rah. And then the next day you show up to work and there's a stack of crime stoppers or some boring thing you've got to read or go to court the next day. And it's just this light. It's like a roller coaster uh-huh. of of what it's like. Yeah. 
So I, I want to go back to something uh, at the beginning of our conversation. Uh, first, you know, when I was in university, I, I went to you know what arguably is elite university, according to some people. And the idea of careers in law enforcement, fire, you know, firemen, none of that ever came up with the friends that I went to Berkeley with. And it doesn't seem like it typically would at most universities. So what prompted you to go down this path of becoming a police officer? And then what are the challenges that you think came with being a woman uh, in particular? Because I, I've seen your TED talk. You don't look like a drug, you know, somebody who could pass for a drug dealer. You know, no, you know, and I mean that as a compliment. Uh, I look at you and I'm like, oh, wow, she looks like a, a blonde, blue eyed woman who really there's no way I could ever mistake her for a drug dealer just from looking at your TED talk. So, I mean, what are the challenges of navigating those two dynamics? Well, first of all, thanks for the TED Talk thing, because I'm 50 when I do that talk. <laughs> so that was uh, several moons after working as an undercover police officer. Uh, I've aged a little bit, as you can see in the TED Talk. But um, my example for policing, um, so, you know, background as a kid, I mentioned, you know, living in a community. My my mom had had lots of, had had some different relationships until she finally met and married her current husband, which has been you know, huge blessing for everybody, but, you know, evolved in abusive relationships, uh, drug using relationships, a lot of different things. So I was always very drawn to justice and wanted to enforce right and wrong, because when you're a kid, you have no power and fantasized about having, you know, being able to have this justice exist in my life that seemed to be missing for so long. And then when my mom remarried, her husband's brother uh, was a police officer and he would, you know, be talking about policing stories and doing things that I was just mesmerized by these stories. And the thing that I was so drawn to was every day was a completely different day. You just didn't show up and, you know, it was the same thing over and over. Every day as a uniformed police officer, one day you could be at a homicide, one day you could be at a traffic accident, the next day you could be presenting to school kids. Like it could, it was just all over the place. And I thought, that is amazing. I want to do that. So he said, well, you have, you know, finish your undergraduate degree. And when you're finished, if it's still something you want to do, then talk to me. So I finished my undergraduate degree. I spoke with him, of course, uh, being female having a university degree were both incredibly helpful for me to get hired very quickly. So I was hired quickly, went through police college and in police college, there were more women than there had been in the past. They were trying to bring more women into to the profession at that time. So, and it's a very artificial environment, right? You're doing fake scenarios all the time. And, and then you get out to your, detachment or your station or, you know, wherever you've been sent. And then the real world really, it kicks in really quickly. It's, uh, you figure out that some of the things that you thought, I, I think it's the same with that yeah, university, yeah. you know, you, you, whatever you train to be, you think it's going to be this certain way <laughs> and then you actually do it. And it's completely not that way. Uh -huh. So I loved it, but I was really drawn to, I, I really did not like traffic at all. I didn't like the community policing stuff where you go and shake hands and hold babies and stuff. And none of that resonated with me at all. Sex assaults and stuff and impaired drivers again, you know, I, I did them all, but I, I wasn't drawn to that. But any drug charges or stuff that was going on or the drug unit would come into our office because they were doing surveillance or doing a big search warrant or something. I was always fascinated by that. And that's how, so they said, okay, we'll come on a couple of search warrants with us. And I did. And then I got picked up to do a couple of quick and easy, you know, a weekend here, a week there, posing as undercover Joe's girlfriend or whatever. And I didn't really like that part because, you know, but that that those are the jobs you get initially as a female. And and then slowly kind of worked my way into uh into my own stuff and and stayed there for uh, as long as I could until I became pregnant. You know, buying crack as a mom is really not a, a great safe job. So I had to, once I knew having a family was going to be, I didn't fit in with the other soccer moms. I knew it was time to give that up. And yeah. I was finishing law school anyway. So uh, that all worked out. Wow. Well, uh, nowadays, I mean, I, like, I don't feel like I see very many women in law enforcement. Like, I can't honestly remember the last time I saw a female police officer. 
in fact, it was so damn long ago. The one that comes to mind was almost 25 years ago. It was a woman. It was a, <laughs> it was a female police officer who gave me a ticket for running a stop sign at, when I was in college at Berkeley. And I remember thinking to myself, like, oh, she's kind of attractive. I wonder if I could talk her out of this ticket and no such luck. <laughs> I mean, apparently, yeah. I'm not that charming. Uh, <laughs> We love those ones. Yeah. We love those ones. And see, that just shows you didn't have a lot of dealings with police, maybe. Yeah, so no, that, in general, I didn't. Uh, but so, you know, I, I wonder uh, just the dynamic of being a female in that work environment. What challenges are unique about it that you don't think males have to deal with? Um, oh, so many. Yeah. It's um, first of all, people don't expect you to be competent mm. right away. Um, there's an, almost an expectation. I felt that it was the opposite. And then you work really hard to prove yourself. And I think a lot of women, and I, I was, you know, if I could revisit myself back in my twenties, when I first started, I I'd probably see things even with more clarity, but you embrace almost this, this masculine side that doesn't seem authentic to who you are because you're trying to fit in. You're trying to be one of the guys. And it took me a long time to realize I'm never going to be one of the guys. I have to just be me and the best version of me I can be and do the best job I can do. And when I started to finally figure that out, I don't think that I consciously figured yeah. that out. I think it's just something that worked out over time. Mm -hmm. The respect that others have for you, your ability to do your job goes up exponentially when you finally start to get yeah. that because you're being true to yourself. And, and I would have to say that there's a culture you've probably heard it, the thin blue line, mm -hmm. the brotherhood. Um, it's all very strong. And, and I felt, I never felt um, that, you know, it was an us and them thing with, with men and women and policing. As a matter of fact, I was really lucky because my first experience uh, with policing when I was sent to my detachment, my coach officer was male. My whole platoon was male. They treated me great. Um, I would say they're a little more protective of women. Like they would be there a lot faster if you were going to certain calls and mm -hmm. things. Um, so, uh, you know, there's definitely two ways you could look at yeah. that. And then as an undercover officer, like I mentioned being a bit that's when you really realize that you're because even though policing is slowly i think it hasn't fully but slowly starting to embrace um women's equality in, in the workplace it's not quite where a lot of other professions are but it's getting there mm -hmm. you know the the underworld sort of area criminal drug dealer they have not embraced that 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 is not where they're at. Women in a lot of cases, especially with bikers and, and the drug dealers that I dealt with, uh, still see women as property, as something to possess, something to use, and a lack of respect is huge. So it sounds very sons of anarchy. <laughs> yeah. So let's... Uh actually get into uh, the work itself. I mean, because I, I think one of the things that really struck me when I was watching the TED Talk was the fact that you said more often than not, you were undercover without a wire, without a weapon. Uh, that's dangerous. Like that doesn't strike me as something that is particularly safe. Uh, so how in the world do you go into a situation like that? One and manage, you know, first manage your own fear um, and manage the things that I think any of us would be like, okay, I'm going to get killed here. Like, I don't think I could, I could, you know, maintain my cover for more than about 20 minutes without saying, you know what, fuck this. I'm sorry. I'm out. <laughs> uh, so that part of it. And then of course, I think the core of your work, which is how do you build trust with somebody who inherently should not trust you? Well, well, the first part, the fear part is always there. I think when you're not afraid, um, that, that's when things can become problematic. You just learn to work with that and use that to your advantage. And your senses and your ability to pay attention to what's going on around you, it, you know, if you're if you're afraid to the point of being terrified, that goes out the window. You're you're not going to make good choices, and you're going to end up probably getting hurt. But a normal fear of being afraid of the situation and knowing that at any moment something could go terribly wrong helps you to pay really close attention to what's happening around you. And you become very good at filtering out 
all of the things that don't really matter. And I think as human beings, you know, when you take a look at our limbic brain, and I'm definitely not a neuroscientist by any stretch, I've read a lot about it, um, but it's clearly not my area of expertise. But as our brains have developed over time, our sensory system, our subconscious is filtering out a lot of things that don't really matter because at the end of the day, we just want to stay alive. We want to make sure our basic needs are met and that's what we're doing. And I think when we reach that heightened sense of fear that is that we are still in control, um, those senses become elevated. So I was able to pay attention to what was happening around me. And you, through experience, can pick up, and, and all of us can, can pick up on things that just don't seem quite right. And then to be aware and be prepared for that and to like go through scenarios in your mind beforehand so that you're ready if indeed something goes wrong. So that that's how I was able to work through that fear. And I think the other, the flip side of that was I was younger. Uh Uh, I didn't have a family. When I became a mom, my fear that the things that you are afraid of is, you know, essentially leaving your child without care. Mm-hmm. And so that takes precedence over everything. But at the time when I was doing that job, uh, working undercover, I didn't have all of those other things playing in my mind. It was all about me. So I think that that made it easier um, from that perspective. And, and then just, you know, moving through, the different scenarios. And, and we all do that, you know, whether or not your job is presenting to a board of directors or, you know, you're in a sales position, whatever that is, if you're really good at it, you've gone through scenarios in your mind beforehand so that you are prepared when things don't go right. Yeah. So before I let you get into the trust thing, I have to ask, did anybody ever try to kill you? <laughs> No, it felt like it sometimes, but um, no, I I think it, the the people want to get the job done. They're in a sales position. The drug dealers, they are the number one thing they want is your money, and they want the profit, and they want thing the deals to run smoothly. And you know, it's interesting when I did the TEDx talk about trust and about being locked in a room and and all of the different things that happen. Um, one of the things that was interesting is I, I asked that uh, the dealer who I'd been locked in the room with and his two buddies and the dogs, et cetera, and the cocaine was, you know, he went into witness protection after that. I said, why did you do that? And he said, because I didn't know who you brought with you. I was, you know, protecting myself. So that idea of a drug dealer trying to protect himself from, you know, 125 pounds of this woman showing up. Uh, didn't make sense at the time, but looking back, obviously um, it did. So understanding that there, you, you had to put yourself in their shoes at all times to be, to be really good at what you were doing. Yeah. And I learned a ton from that. Hmm. So let's talk about this core idea of, of what your work is about, which is being able to read deception, body language, trust. I mean, I think you have such an interesting laboratory for developing these skills because most people are, you know, putting these sort of social science uh, skills to the test in corporate environments, not places where we're going to get shot, potentially. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I think, first of all, I really want people to understand that there's absolutely no such thing as a human lie detector. You know, polygraphs don't always work. There's no person out there that can detect lies. That's uh, So deception detection, I think, is more about really looking for signs that aren't in alignment with what's happened before a stimulus, for example. So when you're trying to really, you know, detect deception and figure out if someone's lying, you're really looking for signs of emotion, for signs of change, for signs that the baseline has shifted a little bit. And there has to be more than one. You know, that's one thing you absolutely learn, whether you're interrogating someone, working undercover, working in whatever type of environment, fraud investigators, etc., there's not one thing that someone's going to do that you're going to be able to say they're not telling the truth. They're trying to deceive me, but you can see shifts that happen and that should alert you to then look for the next sign and look for the next sign. And when you start building up and recognizing, okay, this, this isn't adding up and being able to figure out why that's happening and to look for more information. That's I think really what the heart of, 
all of the things that I'm trying to do and work through and research really, it comes down to that is just that foundation of trust. Let me give you a a practical example to frame this with. So we had a a partner that we worked with for quite a while. Um, I I won't mention their name for the sake of of the fact that I don't want to get sued. Um, But, you know, the the person who ran this company promised us the moon. And six months into our Mm -hmm. relationship with them, we were begging to get paid by them Mm -hmm. um, for the things that they promised. Like, And it was one of those things where we finally had to end the contract. Now, how in a situation like that would we have recognized that? Um, basically we were being sold a bill of goods. Well, I would want to know, how did you have conversations with this person? Was it always over the phone? Did you meet them in person? No, we actually met in person in this person's office. Um, keep in mind there was, I think we were partially starstruck, um, which I think biased the way we were looking at this. This is a person that had pictures of presidents on the wall, um, with themselves, you know, celebrities. And we got this sort of dog and pony show that made it look like we were going to be promised the world. And the funny thing is other friends of ours who are peers of mine still work with that company and they've been well taken care of. I think we're all conditioned to look for the truth and for a reason to trust someone. If we were always looking for the bad in someone and always looking for a reason not to trust, society just wouldn't run properly. It's, It's how I was able to do my job as an undercover police officer. It's how you're able to do your job is that foundation of trust. So I think that going into the relationship, as you mentioned, with someone who you really wanted to be in that business relationship with, you overlooked some things. It's like when we're when someone's in a marriage and uh-huh. one of the people are having an affair, you see signs and there's something in the, you know, your your spidey sense is saying, okay, this doesn't seem right, but I love this person or I'm in, you know, I trust this person in their business relationship because I know other people who have worked with them. Clearly, uh, a photograph with a president would, you know, indicate authenticity and integrity on their part. That's how I, you know, you would see all of that. So to really look for things, I think the first thing is asking direct questions. And if you knew that person from previous relationships, so you saw how they handled themselves in day-to-day conversations... Ask, you always ask a direct question that has more than a yes or no answer and watch if there's a shift in mm. their in how their their posture is, how if their hands were moving when they were talking about something and they're really animated and excited and then you ask them something about your contract and all of a sudden there's very little movement because people are trying to control their movements when they're not telling the truth mm. oftentimes. Um, different tonality in voice. But, you know, if there was that one thing to know, I think I could make billions of dollars and save people (laughs) so many headaches um, that, you know, be a great thing. But I think just looking for signs and always being aware of how things have been, that's why people are always so surprised when they find out that they've been betrayed by someone they're close to. You know, even Tony Robbins talks about being hugely betrayed by a business partner who he had had a long-term relationship with. And if anyone's great at reading people and understanding people and human dynamics, (laughs) it would absolutely be him. But you trust that person and you overlook things because that's how we're able to be in relationships with people. So, I think this this actually makes a perfect setup for another question about romantic relationships. So I know myself well enough to know that I have to keep my emotions in check, particularly because I have a tendency to like, you know, idealize somebody rather quickly. Mm-hmm. And what I, I've come to realize over the last few years is that my first impressions aren't always accurate. In fact, it's somebody's actions over time that reveal their character. And I've had this experience with um, somebody I thought was amazing. Uh, and that person turned out not to be with more than one yeah. person. So how do you deal with your own cognitive biases in situations like that? Yeah, there's, I think, first of all, getting crystal clear on what your values are that are so important to you. I think oftentimes we, we talk about things and and create a value system or a set of beliefs based on what we think the other person wants to hear or what they're interested in, especially when it's a newer relationship or, you know, a first time out on a date, et cetera. I would encourage, and I've talked to my my son about this and friends. I have friends, of course, who, you know, are making the second go. Uh, you know, they've been married, been divorced, been betrayed, whatever. And they ask these questions. Well, how do I know? You know, 
can you tell by looking at someone? <laughs> and and you just you can't. But I think it's so much trust starts with me. So trust is really an internal thing. I think we think about it externally so much because it's about do we trust the other person? But it's really so much about ourselves. So if you're crystal clear on your values and what you believe, and I've read several of your blogs, I've looked through your website, and I know you're very clear on your belief system and you're <laughs> incredible at articulating yeah. uh, what that is. And I think making that really clear and really well known to the people that you think you might take it to the next level with is so important. And you're not oftentimes going to find out if they're just feeding you a line to tell you the things that they think you want to hear mm. um, until sometimes it's a bit too late. There, there are things to look for, for sure. But you, if you're always looking for deception and you're always looking for that one thing, you'll never find the yeah. truth because you're, you're looking in the wrong direction. I, mm. I think, you know, I've, I, the word vulnerability used to make me throw up a little bit in my mouth, but now, you know, I've embraced the Brene Brown and I, I get it and I love all of that stuff. And I think that that risk is the most beautiful part of life. Mm. And it makes you feel alive. Risk makes you feel alive. And yeah. that's why I loved all of the jobs I've had. That's why I've loved the things I've done. Um, and you know, I've been lied to many, many times and deceived over and over again. And, you know, just when I thought something made sense, it doesn't make sense. And that's the beautiful part of life because yeah. you learn each time. But if you allow yourself to get jaded and think that everybody is a liar, um, life's going to be pretty tough. You know, my son will do things. Mom, am I lying to you? He tries to <laughs> test me all the time. Wow. Uh, I have one question that I, I forgot to ask uh, that uh, I wanted to, and, and that is, you know, you're not, like you said, the sort of typical soccer mom, uh, you know, no. suburban, you know, woman. How do you navigate, particularly during your undercover career, uh, like, did you even have relationships with women who were in, in positions like that, who had what would be considered normal jobs compared to yours um, or, I, you know, fit that profile? Like, how does that dynamic even work? You know, that was a challenge a lot of times because I worked so much. I was gone away from home all the time. My neighbors knew that I was a police officer, but they thought I was part of a, um, like a, a fraud investigative team. And I'd have to go to the big city all the time to do that. So they really didn't know a lot about me. And, you know, I, I would pull my car into the garage. I didn't spend a lot of time talking to them. And, the other women in my life were usually the wives of the guys I worked with because I always wanted to make sure I got to know all the wives. They liked, you know, their husband is going away for weekends with me or months at a time. You kind of want to make them feel like, you know, I look at your husband like my brother, mm. not as anything else. So I had relationships there, but again, very different, you know, they were having babies and they were, you know, had lots of different concerns and different things going on that, that weren't in my world at that time. So I have to say, I didn't have a lot of female um, friends during that period of my life. But now, of course, uh, when I became a lawyer, when I was a federal prosecuting attorney, I met, it's still a fairly male dominated career, but I met some women who were definitely the same interests as me and you can't become connected. And then when you become a mom, it's a whole different ballgame. All of a sudden your interests and the things that you do and talk about are the things that I thought I would never talk about this. I could care less <laughs> about this. And then I find yeah. myself, I'm talking about it. I'm into it. You know, what kind of car seat are you getting? You know, it's all these things I thought. Who have I become? And then, uh, yeah, you just, it, it's, again, it's that Puppets shit. that sound mind-numbing to me as a single guy. <laughs> yeah. Well, one day you will may possibly be in that situation where you're going to be standing beside another soon-to-be dad and talking about things that you think. How about oh, car seats? <laughs> like what happened How to our amazing life. Here? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, Wow. Uh, I can see now why Brian referred to you. This has been phenomenal and fascinating and interesting. So I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews. Um, what do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? I think being themselves, being authentic to who they are and being unapologetic for that authenticity. 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World, and this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator, that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.